Welcome to The Greek Current, a podcast by Halk and Kathy Merini. I'm your host, Thanos Davelis. Turkey's worsening economic crisis has eroded President Erdogan's popularity ahead of elections in 2023, threatening to oust him from power for the first time in two decades. Yet, a large number of voters continue to support him, despite his role in creating this crisis. During his 20 years in power, Erdogan has developed widespread patronage networks and built clientelistic relationships that have helped sustain his rule, paying him back for the favors in money, public relations, and votes. Merve Tahirolu, the director of PAMED's Turkey program, joins me to look into this network of patronage and clientelism and break down why it matters with elections on the horizon. Merve, great to have you back on The Greek Current. Hello, Tanos. Merve, Turkey's deepening economic crisis, largely a product of President Erdogan's unorthodox economic policies, has hurt his popularity. How concerning is this for Erdogan ahead of the elections set to take place next year? So it's very concerning, or at least it should be. And that's because Erdogan has never really had such a low level of approval rate before that, that as he does now in the last 20 years. Granted, his party, the AKP, has been losing its appeal pretty steadily, I would say, since around 2015. But it always looked like Erdogan himself was able to stay above that. People who were concerned about the AKP's policies were taking it out on the party, but not necessarily out of Erdogan. Since about 2018, though, as the currency crisis, I think, started around then, we have seen a really, really sharp fall of Erdogan's approval rate and popularity. And so now that he's facing these elections next year, he's in a more vulnerable position than he has ever been. And that is entirely because of the economic crisis. I mean, this is the clear reason that people are pointing to in opinion polls as to why they're deserting the party for those who do. And this is particularly important for Erdogan because, you know, for the longest time, maybe in the first 15 years that he was in power, his biggest appeal to such a large portion of the Turkish electorate was the fact that he kept promising and delivering economic growth. He did really in the first decade that he ruled Turkey, he you know almost tripled Turkey's GDP, and that really helped grow the middle class in Turkey. So people were looking at this guy saying, even those people who were concerned that he's pretty much an Islamist, were saying, you know what, at the end of the day, he's able to deliver economic prospects for us. And so maybe it's good to have him, we want to have a stable leader, even though that we dislike some of his policies, he's able to provide economic growth for us. So that seems to have changed. And I think that is very, very concerning for him. It puts him in an extremely difficult position ahead of the election. But at the same time, I should note, he is surrounded by all these yes men. I mean, he has been pretty isolated in the past few years. So I'm not sure if he quite understands how damaging this economic crisis is for his prospects. He certainly sees his approval rate and the opinion polls, but I can't say for sure that he understands exactly exactly how much this could hurt him. Merve, in your piece for PAMED, you laid out that despite tanking the economy, a large number of voters continue to support President Erdogan. What explains this? Well, it's a, it's a few factors. All of them, I would say, are motivated really by ideology. So some of his voters, and by his voters, I mean those people who voted for Erdogan and the AKP in the previous elections, 
I think about a third of them, as we see in opinion polls, simply don't understand the role that Erdogan actually plays in this crisis, which is both that he won't raise interest rates, as we all know. In fact, he keeps cutting them as inflation keeps rising, which is a serious you know, contributing factor to the crisis. But also, he did inflate Turkey's economy so much over the last 20 years and basically created a bubble. So he not only is pursuing these unorthodox policies now that are contributing to the currency crisis and the inflation, but he also governed the economy or mismanaged the economy in such a way in the last 20 years that basically allowed for the conditions for such a crisis to come about in the first place. But so there is, you know, a faction of his voters who simply just don't see that. They don't see his role in it. His AKP-aligned or Erdogan-aligned media, which is a majority of Turkey's media, keeps projecting this image that Turkey is just one of many countries affected by a global crisis, right? So there's nothing unique here. It's not an exception for Turkey. Look at the UK. It's constantly dealing with crises. So we're not alone. And so I think they simply don't connect how Erdogan's policies and economic mismanagement is contributing to the awful situation that Turkey is in. There's another group, I think a much smaller group, but still important, who do see how uniquely bad Turkey's situation is compared to other countries. But they blame it on sanctions by the US and the EU or like a broader targeting of Turkey by its, you know, Western neighbors. Everybody is trying to bring Turkey down. And this is why we are suffering so much because there's a group of Western countries that are against us and are jealous of us and don't want Turkey to grow. And that's why we're in the situation. So they also don't blame Erdogan. They just blame the West. And then you have a third group, which is, I think, the biggest chunk of the AKP's voters. And they seem to actually understand the problem that Turkey is facing and how it, you know, exceptional and unique it is. And they do understand Erdogan's role in it, too. But they don't seem to think that the opposition can do much to help the problem. And at the same time, Erdogan keeps announcing all these benefits for people, you know, whether with, you know, social housing or better retirement benefits and, you know, higher minimum wage, all these things that he is able to do, of course, because he has control over the welfare state. So I think this group of, of AKP voters who are remaining loyal to the party and to Erdogan, they're thinking, well, what's the point of electing someone else? They're not going to be able to do anything better. And in fact, at least Erdogan, he likes us and he's doing something to help us while all of us are facing this horrible crisis. So I think all of these factors, which is completely perpetuated by pro-Erdogan media every single day, it is getting to these voters and reinforcing their ideological disposition towards them. Over the last 20 years, Erdogan has also built a network of patronage and clientelism, and this ties into the voter base as well. How deep are these networks, Merve, and how critical have they been in keeping Erdogan in power over the last couple of decades? Oh, they're very deep and very critical for his rule. I don't think Erdogan would have been able to stay in power as long as he did if he hadn't built such a vast clientelistic network. I mean, scholars keep writing that, you know, all parties in Turkey, one way or another, have had some patronage networks in Turkey. But Erdogan has really built an unprecedented level of this. I mean, he has these relationships with the urban poor, which he's able to sustain through the use of the welfare state and his control over municipal resources. 
But also he has built these crony networks in the business sector by, you know, having 20 years of power, of course, really helped him, right? The AKP changed a lot of Turkey's laws, particularly public procurement laws. And it gave itself the ability to pick and choose whom to accord the government tenders, especially in the construction sector, which is very big in Turkey and grew hugely under Erdogan. So basically, they were able to selectively pick and choose companies and business people and build them up, I think, as a rival to and in order to displace the previously secular business class that was able to dominate the upper middle class in Turkey. They wanted to displace them with a group of people that would be more loyal Erdogan and the party. So they built these really big networks and these relationships run really deep. I mean, you often see, you know, the most notorious cronies, you know, we call them the gang of five in Turkey, because there's five of them that seem to be getting away disproportionate amount of all the government tenders and then have grown extremely rich in the last 20 years. So we see members of their families being involved in like Erdogan's kids' weddings, or Erdogan will often be the witness at the weddings of their children. So we see them in these social events. They have very close personal ties that they have with Erdogan. And through these personal ties, of course, the companies get benefits. And then in turn, they go and buy a bunch of media companies. And, you know, they're able to then use those media companies as Erdogan's propaganda machines. Or they donate huge sums of money to the AKP and to Erdogan when they're campaigning before elections. Or they will help fund these major projects that Erdogan has, such as, you know, building massive mosques. We see them donating to these mosques or donating to these foundations that are owned or controlled by Erdogan's children or friends and, you know, other AKP ministers. So it's this mutually dependent relationship that they have built with Erdogan which has, you know, locked them in a position where each side is feeding one another and that's how they're able to sustain the regime that Erdogan has built. Given where the economy is, however, can Erdogan continue to keep, you know, these clients or this network happy? And what does that mean for their relationship and for the elections as we look ahead? This is the big question, right? How is Erdogan able to maintain these relationships as the economy seems to be tanking? So there are a bunch of ways that he's able to do that. So there's two strands that I explained, but the more like crony capitalism and there's the urban poor, the two different factions that are dependents of him. With the urban poor, he's able to use the welfare state to say, okay, we're going to build this massive social housing for you. We're going to give you all these benefits, higher minimum wage, higher retirement benefits, more money for teachers, etc. So he's able to keep some of those networks afloat using the Turkish state, which means, you know, keep on spending the money that he in reality shouldn't have. Or if he had good economic policies, he wouldn't be spending so much, but he is because he doesn't care. And what's most important is to be able to keep these patronage networks going. And then with the business class, he can't really deliver to them any foreign investment the way he was able to do in his first 10 years. And there's not much money really flowing into Turkey in that way. Clearly, the inflation is really bad. So he has to do something. And we do see him still, you know, continue with the preferential treatment when it comes to government contracts. And he does seem to find some sort of foreign investment 
And I think it seems to be going into mainly Erdogan's cronies. He also, as you know, <laughs> has made some huge foreign policy U-turns in the last two years. Namely, he has suddenly become friends with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Just two years ago, he was calling Saudi Arabia murderous because of Jamal Khashoggi, blaming the United Arab Emirates with trying to instigate a coup against him. But now he's friends with them. And that means that these both of these countries have agreed to invest, you know, $10 billion each into Turkish banks and companies. And of course, that money also is going to go to these cronies. There's also, as we all know, Russian money that's been flowing into Turkey, quite a bit of it since the beginning of the Ukraine war. A lot of economists are demonstrating that Turkey, I think, alongside India, is, you know, one of the huge beneficiaries of Russian, what seems to be oligarch money that's coming into the country. And that, too, is ultimately going to go into feeding these networks. So Erdogan is trying to keep these people happy, at least until the election, so they don't switch sides. Although many of these cronies do seem to be worried because there were serious rumors earlier in the fall this year that some of them were reaching out, particularly this you know top five group, the Gang of Five that I referred to, that they were trying to get meetings with the main opposition leader. Why are they trying to get meetings with the opposition leader when they have such close ties with Erdogan? Because they're worried about the election results, right? At the same time, the main opposition party has been spurning them. So it's not like they have many options. They seem to be entertaining the ideas of maybe switching sides, but the opposition is firmly rejecting any outreach from them. So I think it looks like they are going to be pretty locked in uh, with Erdogan and the AKP. You brought up the opposition, and the opposition is trying to make the economy, Erdogan's handling of it, and the crony clientelism a central part of its campaign. It seems that this isn't changing minds, as you've laid out, to the degree that maybe some would think. Is the opposition Mm -hmm. simply failing to convince the public that it can turn things around? Well, I have to give them a little bit of credit, because I think they are changing some you know, hearts and minds. The AKP and Erdogan have lost a significant amount of support as the opinion polls show us. And I mean, that's both because they are seeing the economic reality, but also because the opposition has been, you know, waging this campaign constantly, bringing up all the, you know, problems with the inflation and tying it to Erdogan, tying it to his presidential system tying it to the autocratic way in which he is governing Turkey, for example, by, you know, firing central bank leaders who keep defying his wishes and they actually want to raise interest rates so he won't allow them. So the opposition does keep pointing them. I think it has helped pull a lot of voters away from Erdogan and the AKP, and I don't really want to minimize that. But at the same time, you are right, there is, you know, this huge group that continues just to support Erdogan, I think mainly for ideological reasons and some of the reasons I laid out earlier. So there is a group of people that the opposition message is not really getting through to. And I think the reason for that is, you know, or the main failure of the opposition so far and what it absolutely needs to do very soon, I mean, not even between now and the election, but probably between now and like January, 
is to actually come up with a plan of how it's going to fix the economy. They still haven't really done that. Some of the opposition parties in this alliance, there's a six-party alliance now that looks like they're coordinating efforts against Erdogan in this election. Even if they don't come up with one joint candidate, they are going to be you know, cooperating and coordinating and going into this election as an alliance. Some of the parties that are in this group of six have come up with some economic plans and some suggestions, but there is no uniform, unified message of like, here's what we're going to do, bite-sized policies that people can understand that we can give in, you know, clear messages to the electorate. They haven't really done that, which perpetuates this idea among AKP voters and also with some opposition voters of, well, we can get rid of Erdogan and maybe that can help at least get the central bank to function more normally. But, you know, ultimately, are they going to be able to fix the economy? Are they going to be able to bring, you know, a different picture for us? It's not that clear yet. So that has been the single biggest failure, I think, of the opposition so far. And they really want to win. They absolutely have to come up with, create and communicate to the Turkish people exactly what they're going to do to fix the economy. That is ultimately going to be the thing that I think pulls enough voters to their side in this next election. Merve, thanks for joining us again. Always great speaking with you. Thank you, Donos. Pleasure to be here. In other news, the head of Cyprus's Orthodox Church, Archbishop Chrysostomos II, died on Monday. He was 81. A forceful character who faced down pro-Russian elements in one of the world's oldest churches, Chrysostomos was among Orthodox leaders to recognize the Ukrainian church's independence after it broke from Moscow in 2020. He was also fiercely critical of Turkey, which invaded the northern third of Cyprus in 1974, yet participated in a group of religious leaders seeking rapprochement on the island. The Cypriot government declared a period of national mourning until the funeral, with flags at half-staff. Meanwhile, Greece will soon ban the sale of spyware, the government said on Monday, after a newspaper report that more than 30 people, including ministers and business people, had been under state surveillance via phone malware. Government spokesman Yanis Ikonomou said the report that the government was behind the spyware surveillance was unfounded. He said the Greek state had not used or bought any such spyware and added that judicial authorities would investigate the latest report. Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis dismissed the report as lacking any evidence, adding that it was a shame and disgrace. Finally, Greece and Cyprus criticized Turkey's revisionist policy during a meeting between the respective foreign ministers in Athens on Monday. Foreign Minister Nikos Dendias stressed that Turkey's provocations don't intimidate Greece, which continues to defend its positions and highlight the absurdity and illegality of Turkish demands. This year alone, Turkey has conducted at least 8,880 violations of Greek airspace while raising questions about the sovereignty of Greek islands. This is why Halk is conducting the No Jets for Turkey campaign. Follow the link in our show notes to learn more about this effort and to take action. That wraps up today's episode of The Greek Current. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.